Well, when we last, uh, last met when I, with me here, I appreciated Eric Aiken coming. I always uh, I got to watch his sermon this week. He always does such a good job, and I appreciate his heart uh, for uh, the church and for the, the, the kingdom of God overall. But when we left off uh, two weeks ago, we were at the end of chapter 3, and we've been dealing with this story that James is sharing with the people uh, in the area where he was serving as pastor around Jerusalem. And he had talked to them about the importance of handling hardship in life. And if you remember, the people in that day who followed Jesus were first-generation followers of Jesus. There, there weren't followers of Jesus before that. James was Jesus' brother. I mean, it's, that's how new it was. And, and they were living in a time, in a particular place, where things were really tough. Uh, you had the Jews on one side who rejected Jesus as Messiah. And so if you were following Jesus' Messiah, they thought you were eh, a little nuts. That hasn't changed over the centuries, I'm afraid, but that's okay. And then on the other side of the equation were the, were the Romans who believed in a pantheon of gods and couldn't imagine how this guy from Galilee was a god at all. And why would you follow him? And in the midst of all of that, they're trying to follow a life of following Jesus. And things were tough. Things were hard. I, I've described it this way. They were living on an island with a raging river running around both sides of it threatening to cover the island at any moment. That's how they, they felt in that life. And as we noticed, noticed before, when life becomes difficult, as followers of Christ, we have to make a decision. A decision that says this, will I become ornery, cantankerous, divisive, or will I work for harmony, for unity, and be an encouragement? That's really a decision we each have to make in that process. Now he turns in chapter 4 to the idea of what living that kind of faith looks like in the face of strife. You know, strife is, seems to be always present, doesn't it? There's always something that you can get in the midst of or some struggle. And he says, how are, you gonna, how are we going to deal with that? How are we going to live in this? How are we going to respond to that? And ultimately his call is this, depend on God. Depend on God through this. So there's four things I want you to see about strife, and we'll read the passage as we go through the message this morning just for the sake of time. Uh, the kids are going bowling today, and I don't want to take any of their bowling time away from them, so I want to do the best I can this morning to get them through, okay? So the first thing I want you to notice about strife is this. Strife brings a deluge of conflict. A deluge is kind of that idea of a water washing over us. When, a, when a, a wave rolls in over you at the beach and you get knocked down, that's a deluge. When a flash flood happens in the, out in the west, comes racing down the stream bed, it's a deluge. In the midst of strife, it seems to bring all kinds of conflict. Look at verses 1 to 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. That's, that's a strong word. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And you do not have because you what? Do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, remember, the followers of Jesus are living in a time when they're facing all kinds of strife everywhere they are. It seems like there were some that had finally gotten to the point they couldn't handle it anymore. They were worried about their families' lives, and they were starting to scatter away from Jerusalem and move to other places. There were others who said, no, we're going to stay right here and be faithful and go through it. James himself, according to church history, ended up being beheaded because of the strife and struggle in his town. I mean, things that, that that's, it, that's how hard it is. But being in the minority of the culture, and they didn't have a lot of power and influence, they had to decide, how am I going to respond? And so what James does here is he asks two rhetorical questions. You saw them in the text. They're this. What is causing this conflict among you? What, what causes it? 
And the other is, are you actually, aren't you actually fighting against yourself in the midst of this? And you're thinking, uh, James, uh, no, we're fighting against the Romans and we're fighting against the Jews and we're having struggles on all this. And James says, maybe the real problem is here. And you go, hmm. Things have become so difficult in the lives of these followers. Here's what's happening. If you were living, if we were to have to live through that situation, I think we could easily imagine some of us, like I said, I'm preaching to myself, uh, some of us doing some of this ourselves. We turn on each other and we start to bicker with each other and we start to attack each other and we try to tear each other down and we try to make ourselves feel better by making somebody else feel worse. And it seems that things are going from bad to worse. And as it's doing that, they're starting to blame each other. I think this is a very common experience for us as people, isn't it? When things get hard, what do we tend to do? We lash out. We get angry. We say, I'll tell you. I'll show you. I'm going to win this argument. I'm going to win this battle. I'm going to be in charge. And we start choosing sides. And we start to say, well, there's us and there's them. And you're going, no, as Christians, we're all us. We're all us's. You know, with me, we're all the same team. I suspect James was more concerned about the selfish spirit than actually who was wrong or right in the situation. And their actions are tearing the fellowship of God apart, which means they were weaker. And so when the attacks from the outside came, it became even more difficult to stand because they're tearing at each other and hurting each other in the process. And the root of the problem, by the way, my friends, is the same fruit same, not fruit, but root that we face today. And it's a carnality that lives within us and dwells within us. Look at the nest list of negative qualities he gave in this passage. He says what? Covetous needs, covetous leads where? To conflict. Anger and animosity lead where? To hatred. And ultimately life is lived for selfishness instead of for God. And such a drive is... Not only a source of conflict, but it's a source of unsatisfied life. And the real reason strife brings this deluge of conflict is this. It's centered on people who say, I don't believe God's really going to take care of me through this, so I'm going to fix it myself. There's our struggle. They don't have, why? Because they haven't asked. Sometimes we say, well, God hadn't done what I need him to do. Um, have you asked? Have you asked him to move? Have you asked him to work? Have you asked him to be involved? Well, no, but he knows. He knows. But he wants us to come to him and what? Ask. God, would you do something here? They don't ask because they really don't believe God can do it. They go, well, you know, I've asked before and it didn't seem to work out like I wanted, so I didn't. And they come out of these attitudes as a world of strife that leads to this conflict, this arguing, the infighting. And if they kept it up, the enemies of God are going to just tear them apart. See, when strife comes in life, it's easy, isn't it, to blame others. It's easier to attack others, to say, oh, it's their fault. It's not my fault. James is saying, we need to change our attitude. So strife brings a deluge of conflict. Second, strife does another thing that I think is is, is important that we grasp. When things get tough, when things get hard, when pressure's coming all around, we're often tempted to compromise, aren't we? We're tempted to say, well, I guess I'll just go along with this. It's okay. It's not exactly what I agree with. Not really what I believe. I don't think it's what God would do, but everybody else seems to be doing it, so let's go ahead. Strife brings a drift, and I chose that word intentionally because rarely do we choose to do the road of compromise. We tend to what? Drift that way. We drift into compromise. Look at the passage. 
remember, he's talking to his church that he pastors. Y'all ready? He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he earns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, he speaks, let's just be blunt, a very harsh word here. And, And to be real clear, I want you to catch something here. Because the English translations, most of the modern translations, do something to the text that while it's acceptable... It kind of hides the real meaning here. You're going, what do you mean? If you look at an old, old, if you have a King James, I think you'll see the right word. If you get to the newer translations, it tends to soften it. The real word here is a feminine, feminine Greek word. I'm having hard times with words today. Feminine Greek word that actually means adulterous, like a female. Okay. And you're thinking, well, who does he think he is getting onto the women? He is not attacking women here. Ladies, don't hear that. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is setting up a reminder to us, church, that we are who? The bride of Christ. Guys, that is the weirdest thing in Christian thought that I struggle with, okay? I have never been a bride. And you know, some of you are thinking, I don't ever want to see him as a bride. Praise God, okay? But as the church of the living God... Whether you're male or female, we are described as the bride of Christ. Y'all with me? So here's the thing he's saying. It says, you adulterous people, you adulteresses, literally, is what he's saying. He's not slamming women. What he's saying is you are something special. You have been chosen. You have been set aside. You have been transformed. You have been changed. But now you're doing what? You're acting like an adulteress, bride of Christ. Who is our bridegroom? Jesus We're called to be faithful to who? Jesus. He's our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords. He's our, 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 the one who walks with us in life, right? And if we choose to step away from Him, we are, spiritually speaking, acting as adulteresses. That's the word He's saying here. His intent, God's was, is for us to live faithfully to our groom, Jesus. To be part of his family. But when we turn away from him, we choose a pathway of selfishness, self-centeredness. We become, by definition, spiritual adulteresses is the word that would be literally transformed, transfer, translated here. In response to these ongoing attacks on the side of the, on each side of the island, what they're trying to do is this. And what we often try to do in our world, and you know, it doesn't work, is we try to what? Go along to get along. Well, you know, I know the Bible says I should this and I shouldn't do this. And, but everybody at work is, you know, that's what they do. So I guess I'll just go along so nobody will think I'm weird. James would say that's spiritual adultery when we do that. They were compromising in ways they never should. They were changing essential beliefs to somehow survive the struggles they were in. And what they were doing was choosing friendship with the world over intimacy with God. And they were taking themselves outside of the covenant relationship with God. And as a result, as another writer in the Bible would say, they were at enmity with God. They were in an argument with God. They were in a disagreement with God. But the bigger issue for them is this. Look right there in the bottom part of that passage, verse 5. There's no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns. God yearns, look at this, jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. Now, y'all catch this. 
what he's saying is, I have placed within me, within you, me, in the form of the Holy Spirit. And that is such an amazing thing that you have, that you've been blessed, that you have the presence of God with you. You know, I'm going to diverse diverge just a second here, but I think that's why often when we get out in life and we do foolish things that are sinful and stuff, you know why we feel bad? It's because it's God within us saying, the Holy Spirit within us saying, what in the world are you doing? Why are you over here? Why are you talking like that? Why are you acting like that? Why are you in this place? Why are you with these people? Why are you doing this? He's saying, hold up. Don't be here. God says, I am yearning over the spirit I have placed within you. I have placed myself within you. God paid the price for our sin. The shed blood of Christ purchased it for us. It bought us complete forgiveness completely and totally. And those who receive his offer have got this amazing gift of the spirit. And we go, well, but I can get along. I want to go along to get along. I want to compromise. I want to drift. I want to do my own thing. To live in that pathway of compromise, what we're doing is dragging the good name of our good, good father, our bridegroom Jesus, through the muck and mire. We're called to a higher standard, folks, to a greater way. So strife brings this deluge of conflict. It brings a drift of compromise. It also brings us to two things. We have to make some choices. The first one is a decision. A decision. A decision about who? About God. How are we going to relate to God through this process? Look at verse 6. But God gives, he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So the first part of this choice we have to make is a decision. How do we find a path forward out of these times that we all deal with? What do we do when strife is raging all around us? What do we do when things are difficult? We have to, listen, make an informed, intelligent, faith-based decision about God and his nature. In other words, we got to stop and say, okay, self, what do I believe about the God who saved me, implanted his spirit within me? What can he do in the midst of this moment? You're going, I've never had that conversation. Maybe it's time that we have those conversations with ourselves and say, okay, what do I believe about God? What's my determination, my decision about God? What am I going to do with him? Will I live according to his call or will I do my own thing? Do I believe that God is God and he's in charge or is it just a game I'm playing and I'm really in charge? There's a universal truth he lays out here, spiritual truth we got to have about this decision. God opposes the what? The proud. Well, if the period was right there, it'd be kind of depressing, wouldn't it? But there's a but. But he does what? He gives grace to who? The humble. The humble. Stop and say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. You know, I cannot control the strife around me. 
Can you can you control the strife around you? I haven't figured out. How, somebody figure that one out. Write a book. We'll make a million dollars. I don't know how to do that one. Okay, I don't know how to control the insanity of people in life. Do you? I don't. I mean, it's just out there. We have to deal with it some way. But we, even though we cannot control it, and often we can't even influence it, we can listen. Decide how we're going to respond to it. Are we going to jump in there with it? Are we going to rise above it? Will we seek to handle things on our own or do we turn to God? And God's grace, listen, here's the beauty part of this. His grace is always ready for you and me. And James says, here's the seven, seven steps to figure it out. Y'all like, I like lists. I, like, I love lists. If I didn't have lists, I couldn't get anything done in life. I have a list on my computer every week for what I'm going to do this week. Don't dare interrupt my list. No, I'm kidding. Come, come by anytime. But here's the thing. He gives us a list. You ready for the list? Here it is. I'm going to go quick because we're not taking detailed time on this one. First of all, he says to what? Submit to God. Oh, friends, how often we look at God and listen to God's voice and go, yeah, I don't think so. This is what I'm going to do. This is my plan. I'm in charge. He says, no, no, submit to God. Second, he says what? Resist the devil. <laughs> Sometimes what we do is this. We go, What's he got? I think I'll take a look at that. You know, maybe I want to do that for a while. He says, no, 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 don't go there. Resist the devil. How about the third one? Draw near to God. Some, of, some people say, well, Pastor, if, if I get close to God, he may ask me to go on a mission field. Y'all are always talking about missions at church. He may send me to Africa or something crazy. Can I tell you something? If God calls you to that, You'll be just content to go do it. And if God doesn't call you to do that, you don't want to do that. You know with me? If God opens the door, you want to do it. Listen to his voice. You know, I'm convinced that he rarely sends us to Africa. He usually sends us to our neighbor. I got to tell you, our neighbors are more scary than our people in Africa to us. You know what? Some of you are going, I know my neighbor. Yeah. How about fourth? He says, cleanse our hands. Honestly, we like the filth sometimes, don't we? We like to wallow in the mess. How about five? Be wretched and mourn. But I just want to be happy and get along. Sometimes we've got to look at the seriousness of the moment and say, okay, God, we've got to deal with this issue. Deal with it. Sixth, give up laughter for mourning. Eh, don't be a downer this morning, Pastor. We want to be happy all the time. Man, sometimes there's a downer out there. We've got to deal with it. We've got to walk through it. How about seven? He says, humble ourselves before the Lord. Huh. God, I'd rather tell you what to do than listen to what you tell me to do. Is often our response. What we have every moment of life is this, a decision that we have to make that says, will I be leading or will God be leading? And what God's call is this, is, has always been is this, come to me and I will make your burdens heavy and difficult and hard. Is that what he says? He says, come to me and I will make your burdens what? Light. I'll make it easy on you. And instead, we want to take it on ourselves and carry it ourselves and do it ourselves. I don't know about you. I worry myself to death sometimes trying to take care of all the problems and fix everything and do everything i got to do. i got to take care of everything. I don't. God can and God will. Strange reality is God actually leaves this decision to us. You know, if I were God, I'd say, you don't get a choice. You're going to follow me. Deal with it. No free will. But we get free will, don't we? So it's on us. 
to make the decision to do that. So strife brings this deluge of conflict. It also brings a drift of compromise. It brings a decision about God. But here's another one thing it does at the end of this passage I want us to look at today in verses 11 and 12. It brings, we're forced to make a determination about others. Look at verse 11 and 12. And remember, he's not writing to the world. He's writing to who? The church, okay? He's talking to the people of God that he pastors at the church of Jerusalem. It wasn't, as we talked about a few weeks ago, it wasn't First Baptist Jerusalem on Main and, and Elm, okay? It, it was the church at Jerusalem. That's just what they were called in Hebrew or Greek, okay? So verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. You know, I read that and I go, duh. Right? I mean, do we have to be told that? Uh, Apparently. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. But there is only one lawgiver and judge. He, meaning Christ, who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? To judge your neighbor. There's another area that God, James calls him to determine is this. How are you going to deal with the relationships of people? See, he understood the reality. We don't live in a vacuum. Some days I wish I did. Don't you? Life would be so much easier if it wasn't all the people. I guess I shouldn't have confessed that in church, but here I am. Some days it'd just be easier not to deal with people. You're going, don't you do people for a living? Yeah, I do. God called me to it. Sometimes I think he's nuts for choosing somebody like me. He's not. He knows what he's doing. But as we truly humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, catch what James is telling them. This is the big idea here. If you'll get yourself right with God, here's what happens. You'll start working to get right with others, with those around you. In fact, if we humble ourselves before God and make a good relationship with Him and do everything in our power, and we're going to talk about that in the application, things will get better. And He says, don't speak evil. Did you see that in the middle of verse 11? That's an interesting little Greek word. I don't use the language very often, but I think this is important. I want you to catch this because we think, oh, that's a new thing. That's because social media has caused everybody to talk bad about each other. We have this now. Oh, no, it's been around a long time. The word he used is katalalia. There's your Greek word to throw on your friends this week. Don't be doing that katalalia stuff. That's the right way to use it in the sentence, by the way. What it means is this, is those people who meet in corners and gather in little groups and their intent is to pass on confidential information about others so they can destroy the ones they're talking about. I know those people. You do too. You may look in the mirror and go, oh, it's me. Guilty of catalalia. What we're doing in that situation is we're setting ourselves up as God. I'm going to judge you because I'm the judge. I'm the one. But if you do that, you're not a doer of what God calls us to do. You're the one who goes around judging those who aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And you've taken God's spot. Shame on you. And when we live in that way, though, we, regardless of what we might say, 
we aren't following God. And what seems to be happening is as they were facing hardship on every side, instead of coming together and saying, man, I don't like everything you do, but I love you, brother. Let's walk together. They're saying, well, I'm going to tear you down. I'm going to catalalia you to death. The safest place for a believer should be at the church with the people of God, right? The place we find the most encouragement, the most support, the most love, no matter how messed up we are. That's what God's kingdom is supposed to be like. So what do we do with all this? Let's just jump on in here. Number one, where does conflict come from? I'm convinced that conflict arises from a misdirected focus in life. We're looking in the wrong place. We're looking in the wrong place. As a follower of Jesus, I was seven when I trusted Christ. So I don't remember my life before Jesus. To be honest with you, I don't remember much of it after meeting Jesus because it's been so long ago. Y'all with me? But I wasn't like this wicked, evil, awful guy before I trusted Jesus. I was just a kid who had a mouth and got in trouble all the time. That didn't change for a while. Okay, it's still working. But here's the deal. He calls us in that equation to what? Surrender everything to Jesus. Say, you know the old song? I surrender some. You know that song? I surrender some. No, that's not right. It's I surrender all, isn't it? We're supposed to surrender everything to him. And we say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. I give it to you. But when that doesn't happen, here's what happens. We find our lives being misdirected and improperly focused, and we find conflict rising, and we find uh, the things around. And a good indicator of that is how we treat those people around us. And because we're focused in the wrong direction. We become this. We become abrasive. We become unpleasant. We become caustic even. And, and God calls us, though, to a higher purpose. He says, I got something better for you. Don't focus on the mess. Don't focus on the junk. Focus on what I got for you. Jesus said it this way. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Love one another however you want to love them. I'm so glad he didn't say that, aren't you? He says, just do it the way I do it. <laughs> okay, Jesus, I'll do it just like you. You don't have to do it on your own. He's going to give you the strength. He placed his spirit where? His spirit's where? Within us, right? He's, he's given us the power, the ability, the strength to go do what he's called us to do. Now we need us to just go do it. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you're my disciples. You know, I'm convinced that the number one reason why people don't want to be in church aside from the fact that they may not know Jesus, first of all, is they see the way sometimes churches act with each other. And they don't show love for each other. And they will catalalia themselves into a tizzy, talking about each other. And they go, why in the world would I want to be a part of that? We need to love each other, church, with the love that Jesus has. Unconditionally, completely, no regard for ourselves. And when that happens, we show God's love. We show that God's love is real. It's within us. We're not perfect. But when we don't do that, we show his love is a farce. It's just a bunch of talk and worthless belief. So conflict arises from misdirected focus. We're not looking in the right place. Number two, so what do we need to do? Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. 
Second, we have to make a decision that says, my attention is going to be on him. Uh, years ago, years ago, about 10, 15 years ago, I went to Mexico on a mission trip uh, with a team, uh, and we were doing a gospel saturation project in a little community down there uh, called Bermajillo. My Spanish is like un poquito, see? So it's very small. It's pretty pitiful. And they always tell me I mispronounce every word I say. So I don't know what that's about. But anyway, we got finished with the week, and we were going to go to a, um, a Spanish mine, okay, from the 1600s. And they were going to let us walk. This is not National Park Service U.S. It's like, oh, it's over there. you got to cross a bridge. Oh, is that a bridge? Yeah, it's a bridge. You looked at the bridge, and it did this thing. What? Y'all don't know this about me, but I, I, I'm not crazy about heights, okay? But I wanted to see the mine because that history. Oh, cool. You know, go see. So we got to cry. And oh, did I tell you, it's over about a 500 foot drop to the bottom of a chasm. And it's as far as from here to the Fellowship Hall, the bridge is. It's not a short bridge. Oh, and it waves and it moves. And I said, is there another way over there? No, you got to cross the bridge. You're going, what is he talking about? So you're saying, did he keep his eyes fixed on Jesus? Mm, not exactly. Here's what I did. I looked down. You with me? And I focused on my steps. One by one by one by one. And I feel that bridge way. And I go, don't look. Don't look left. Don't look right. Keep my eyes focused where I need to go. And I kept walking. And lo and behold, I got to the other side of the bridge. I got to see the mind. That's my point this morning, guys. We are so, it's so human of us to look around at circumstances, look around at this, look at that. Look at that problem over there. Look at that. Look what they're, oh, can you believe what they're doing? I, I saw that on, I saw it on social media. Do you see what they said? I can't believe they said that. Uh, oh my goodness, guys. We waste so much of our time on stuff that just doesn't matter. The call is to what? Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and let him lead us through. Hebrews 12.1 puts it perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. <clears throat> the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Looking to who? To Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of, the, of God, at the throne of God. How many times do we find ourselves worrying about, talking about, focusing on, getting upset about something that in a week we're going to go, now what were we talking about last week? We won't even remember it. We got our eyes in the wrong place. Living the Christian life, my friends, is not a chore. It's not putting your eyes down and looking to get across the bridge. It's looking at Jesus saying, I'm trusting you step by step by step. But we face something that is real. I think the church of Jerusalem was facing this, this spiritual drift. You know, one of the things coming out of COVID was interesting is there were a number of folks that got real comfortable. Uh, and if you're watching with us today, I'm not picking on you this morning, but they got real comfortable watching online and they go, I'll just sit here in my PJs and have a coffee and watch and I'm done. And that method, that, that the avenue needs to be there because there's more people who can't get out. I get that. There are people who are physically infirm that can't get out. But what's happened to many is they said, eh, I got used to not going, so I'm not going to go anymore. I don't need it. Can I tell you something, friends? I need it. 
I need the interaction of people. I need to have a hug from time to time for those who like hugs and those who don't. I just give them a hey or a knuckles, whatever. But, but we need that interaction, don't we? You go, but they're messy. People are messy. So are you. We need each other. And then finally, seek peace with everyone. Seek peace with everyone. Now, does that mean I have to have peace with everybody? Does it mean I'm going to have peace with everybody? No, it doesn't mean that. But we don't need to be the people who are stirring the pot, stirring up trouble, trying to create problems for other people. See, whether the world's attacking from all our sides or there's a calm around us, one of the primary tasks as a child of God is to work for the peace of everyone as best we can. The writer of Romans put it real well when he said, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I can't force peace with someone who refuses to work for it. But that does not exempt me or you for working for peace, to be a peacemaker, to do our part and leave the rest to God. Friends, the first step to having peace with each other is to have peace with God. Where do you find peace with God? Let me just make it real plain. It starts with a decision that says, I answer Jesus' call to follow him. You go, I don't know what that means exactly. I didn't either. No one does. But it's that first step that says, Jesus, I trust you. You go, how do I do that? It's simple. You just stop in prayer and say, Jesus, I trust you. I want to follow you. I want to be your follower. You go, well, uh, what if I mess up? You will. But you ask for forgiveness and keep going. That's the first step to repent of our sin, to turn away from who we are and turn to Him. So I'm going to ask you just to take a moment and close your eyes and bow your head and we're going to pray and then we're going to sing a song of invitation. Maybe you're here today and you need to respond, not to me, but to God speaking to your heart right now. We pray your hand to be in this moment. We pray you to speak into our lives clearly and lovingly. And Father, help us to take that next step on the faith journey, whatever it is for us that leads us closer to you.